What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk Minnesota Sports. I'm your host, Andrew Neuer, coming at you on a Wednesday night at 11.30 p.m. on June 8th. That's the sweet sound of an, of an amber ale from Ben Paddle. Let me know what you're drinking in the comment section below. We have a lot to talk about, so let's talk some Minnesota sports. Today's episode is brought to you by Eric Molsather at Coldwell Banker Realty. The real estate economy right now is crazy, and it's the perfect time to sell your house. Whether you're looking to sell, invest in real estate, or find your next dream home, then Eric Molsather at Coldwell Banker Realty is your guy. Eric is committed to bringing you an experience that goes beyond just buying or selling a home. If that sounds like you, give Eric Molsather a call at 651-357-6528. Or email him at eric.molsather at cbrealty.com. That's eric with a K dot M-O-L-S-A-T-H-E-R at cbrealty.com. And tell him Andrew sent you. All right, let's begin things with talking about the Minnesota Twins. I was at the game tonight, and what a win over the New York Yankees. And as we all know, beating the New York Yankees is different than beating any other team. The Yankees have simply owned us over the couple of years, and... Just getting this win kind of feels like a little a little victory towards maybe something bigger, potentially brewing. I mean, obviously the Yankees are the best team in baseball, and Minnesota is still kind of figuring things out. They're still not a contender, I would say, but getting this win allows you to feel a little more confident moving forward, I'd say. You know, going into the whole thing after playing the Royals and the Tigers. We're a little nervous, you know, thinking like, hey, is this team for real? You know, they're struggling against the Kansas City Royals and the Detroit Tigers, two teams that are obviously not the best in terms of like considering every team in baseball. And then you're going to go up against the Toronto Blue Jays on the road and then the New York Yankees and the Tampa Bay Rays. And going in without a couple of your players playing the Tampa sorry, playing the Toronto Blue Jays and you take two out of three, then you go to, then you're playing New York and you, as of right now, as of June 8th, you're one and one. And maybe you have the chance to take the series against the Yankees. That's a huge W. And quite frankly, I don't think you could take a poll of any single, every single Minnesota Twins fan. And I don't think after five games, you could say that you'd be like, Hey, if the twins were would it be three three and two. If they were if you would have said they're three and two after five games against the Blue Jays and the Yankees, you'd be like, Yeah, hundred percent all day long I'm taking that. And that's what it is. You can't you can't be disappointed. Even if they lose against the Yankees on Thursday, you split three and three then. You're you're three and three against the Blue Jays and the Yankees, and then you're going into playing Tampa Bay, who you've already beaten once this season in a series battle in Tampa Bay. And you have to feel pretty good about where the twins are. And right now, Minnesota is 33 and 25. They have a four game lead over Cleveland. They have a five game lead over the Chicago White Sox. And obviously Detroit and Kansas city aren't really a part of this conversation, but having a four game lead over Cleveland is great. I'm not stressing about Cleveland whatsoever. They're always going to be kind of hovering around that 500. The team that scares me is obviously the Chicago White Sox. 
They're one of the most talented teams in baseball. And obviously when healthy, you could, you could honestly make the case that they're a top five team in baseball. And I've been saying this on the podcast ever since I started this before the season started. This is a team that the Chicago White Sox are a team that easily could be a top three team in baseball. They're a World Series contender when healthy. And this season they have not been healthy and they've been downright pretty bad. I mean, they're not winning games. They beat the Dodgers the other night. But still, when healthy, the Chicago White Sox are the biggest threat to the Minnesota Twins. And I tweeted about this earlier today. And if the Minnesota Twins do not go out and make a trade for a number one starter or a high leverage arm, they're going to be sitting there in July and maybe even August and September thinking, hey, remember when we could have made that trade for a starter or when we could have made a trade for a high leverage bullpen arm? Yeah, they're going to be kicking themselves for not making that kind of move. They have a four and five game lead over the the Cleveland Guardians and the Chicago White Sox. And to put it simply, let's say hypothetically, you make this trade for a number one starter. Maybe you gain a two to three game extra lead on the Guardians or the White Sox. That's huge. Then maybe that three game builds up on another three games the next month. Then you're sitting at seven. Then you're sitting at 10. Then you're sitting at 13. It just keeps going on and on. And it's obviously really early in the season to say, hey, put your foot on the... And I said this. I said, you put the foot on the on the gas pedal and you take, and you take, you take control of things. And quite simply, Minnesota has that opportunity. And if they were in any other division, I wouldn't say this early in the season that you can take control of the division but like i said cleveland has not been great chicago hasn't been great and this is a perfect opportunity to trade for a number one starter and take control of the al central and obviously health bring plays a huge factor in all this and i feel like we've been talking about this in every single podcast and obviously you're going to have a lot of injuries throughout a 162 game season but this has been honestly pretty brutal it feels like when one guy comes back another guy gets injured Carlos Correa returns to the lineup tonight. Luisa Rise obviously has a little bit of shoulder tightness after diving for that ball on Tuesday against the Yankees. So you lose you lose Luisa Rise, but you gain Carlos Correa. It'd be incredible to have both of them in the lineup, but hey, this is Minnesota. We can't have both. We can't have everything nice. But the good news is Caleb Thielbart, Trevor McGill, Emilio Pagan, and Max Kepler both returned from the COVID restricted list. That meant that Jarrell Cotton, Ian Hamilton, and Mark Contreras were the corresponding moves that were sent down. Luckily, though, Jarrell Cotton was deservedly. He got the call back after they DFA'd Juan Manaya. Cotton this season is 2-1. He has an ERA of .93 and only 9.2 innings of work. But he's come up really big, and especially we saw that in the game against the Blue Jays where he came in for a Giovanni, Giovanni Moran, and he got the Twins out of a jam. Jarrell Cotton deserved to be up in the big leagues, and it's nice to see the Twins actually recognize it and give him the call. I think in the past, we'd more than likely just kind of be like, hey, Cotton deserves to be up. Minnesota's like, hey, you know, we like this other guy. We don't care what you think. And to see kind of Twins Twitter and the Twins management kind of shake hands and be like, let's agree on this. It was awesome to see that Drell Khan got the move. And obviously getting Correa back 
is awesome. The Twins win as soon as he's in the lineup. Yes, I know that he DH'd, but just having him in the clubhouse, kind of having him around the guys, having him hit that big, uh, what inning was it? He had the hit right after Byron Buxton, and to kind of keep piling on the Yankee pitchers and having them in the lineup, they're going to have to approach the Twins a lot different with Carlos Correa batting second than they are going to have, than they're going to pitch Palacios in the ninth spot. Is as simple as that. And it's it's tough to see Palacios go down. He deservedly he deserves to be up in the big leagues. He played honestly, obviously his batting average may not reflect that he was playing great. Obviously he wasn't fantastic, but he was really good, honestly, given the circumstances. You know, it was his first time up in the big leagues and he's hitting two hundred. But he had he had some really good at bats, taking pitchers deep into two accounts. Uh, playing really good defense. He did not look like he was playing in the big leagues for his first time ever. Obviously, he had that one air, that one game. But other than that, he looked great defensively. He had really good at-bats. And I think it's pretty safe to say that Jermaine Palacios is going to have a MLB career, whether it's with the Twins or not. And that's great to see that the Twins obviously have had depth all season, and Palacios is just another example of it. And then you have Josh Winder. He's going to be making a rehab assignment start on June 10th, as well as Joe Ryan. He'll be making his rehab start on June 9th. So obviously the bad news, you lose Bailey over. He's going on the 15-day day IL. His retroactive date is June 2nd, so we won't probably see him for another week and a half. And that's kind of considering rehab start, conditioning, et cetera. And then obviously you have Sonny Gray, who's on the 15-day IL. His retroactive date is May 30th, but we probably won't see him for another week as well. So you're getting Josh Winder, you're getting Joe Ryan back, but you also lose Bailey Ober and Sonny Gray. But just having Winder and Joe Ryan back in the starting rotation is huge because Minnesota's been tossing out Cole Sands and Devin Smelter has been wonderful, and I really hope he sticks. But you have to admit and any Twins fan will admit, the starting rotation has been bad. And maybe having these guys come back pushes Dylan Bundy out of the rotation, who I think is now the odd man out after Chris Archer played, pitched really well. The last game against the Detroit Tigers went five and like 60 pitches. Should have gotten another inning, but that's another conversation for another day. Pitched pretty well against the Yankees. It's not an easy lineup to pitch against, but he did really well. Only gave up one earned run. And Dylan Bundy is obviously the odd man now. I guess we'll see what he does on Thursday night, but maybe getting Josh Weiner, getting Joe Ryan back, potentially will push Bundy out of the rotation as soon as Bailey Ober and Sonny Gray come back. And uh, obviously Kyle Garlic, he won on the 10-day IL. It's kind of a, uh, a low-key move, to be honest. I really flew under the radar, kind of whizzed past my head, saw it late. But he is on the, uh, the 10-day IL with a hamstring injury. And, you know, I was kind of hoping maybe we'd see Alex Kirilov come up because obviously Kyle Gallrick plays the outfield. And the Twins have great depth out there with Nick Gordon, Hilberto Celestino, Max Kepler, Byron Buxton. But maybe now that Luis Arias is injured, we'd maybe see Alex Kirilov, especially with Kyle Garlic out. If this injury with Luis Arias is serious, 
I think that we see Alex Kirloff get the, the call. He's been incredible in AAA, and I've been tweeting about it before. He had four home runs last week. He was part of my minor league Monday report. He was on the top performers list. He's hitting 330, 340. Last time I checked, it was 330 or something. doesn't matter. He's been playing really well. He deserves a call, and hopefully if Luis Rise is not able to go, he gets the call. Randy Dobnak suffered another setback in his recovery from the finger injury. Uh, if you listen to Darren Wolfson's podcast, on the, he's from KSTP, does a uh, scoop podcast. He reported that he was getting really close to returning, but suffered a setback. And hopefully it's nothing too serious. And obviously Randy Dobnak signed that contract. He's going to be on the books for another couple of years. But he's a guy you root for. He's one of those guys didn't really obviously have this big background of being a top prospect, top talent, kind of made his way up. You hear, you heard the story about him being an Uber driver to make some money on the side. And hopefully Randy Dobnik is able to come back. He's been a part of a twins organization for such a long time. Royce Lewis, obviously we don't know anything really about him. There hasn't been a second MRI yet. So hopefully there's nothing serious when they do examine it. It's obviously a tough to kind of see what's happening with all of, you know, if there's any inflammation, any bruising kind of thing. So they're kind of waiting their time on that. So that's why it's taken a really long time. But hopefully during that second MRI, nothing kind of pops up. And hopefully if everything is good to go, he can return to the lineup soon. And obviously the Twins rotation, we talked about this earlier on the podcast, that they need to make a trade. It's pretty simple as that. You can't go further into the season, just kind of rolling out all these guys of Dylan Bundy. Chris Arch has been great, but how often can you really rely on him? And there's been just been too many injuries. So you have Joe Ryan, who's making his rehab start this week. You have Josh Winder, who's making his rehab start this week. But Sonny Gray has been in and out of the starting rotation because of injuries. He's on the 15-day IL. Same with Bailey Ober. He's on the 15-day IL. And Dylan Bundy has been brutally bad. He's got a 5.57 ERA negative wins above replacement of 0.4 and obviously Chris Paddock who had Tommy John surgery and he's out for the season Kenta Maeda is part of that starting rotation obviously he's not going to be back maybe this season everything looks great they're reporting that he's kind of doing toss on a flat mound hopefully in a couple weeks he's hoping to pitch off a mound but if he does return it won't be till like September and even then how much can you really count on a guy who's 36, 37 coming off Tommy John? So, I mean, you kind of hope something, maybe he comes out of the bullpen as a middle relief option moving forward. But Minnesota has been just hit left and right with all these injuries and trading for a number one or just trading for a really good starter kind of maybe puts a little more cushioning on there. Cause it's we're only in June and you you can expect to see more injuries. You can expect maybe Joe Ryan to go on the 10 day, 10 day IL with something. And maybe you see Sonny Gray go back on the 10 day or 15 day IL in August or July. So making these trades for the starting pitching kind of gives you that cushion to maybe take a hit when Chris Archer's on the mound or take a hit when Dylan Bundy's on the mound. And as we're on the topic of trades, I did want to review the New York Yankees 
Minnesota Twins trade with Josh Donaldson. Did the Minnesota Twins win the trade? And I 100% believe they did. To review, the Yankees got Ben Rodfett, Josh Donaldson, and Isaiah Kenner-Falefa. And Minnesota received, obviously, Gary Sanchez and Gio Urshela. And Ben Rodfett, we love him. Seems like a great guy. Didn't obviously have the potential to be maybe an MLB starter long-term. But he's also on the 60-day IL with a knee injury. I think he might be returning soon, but losing Ben Rodfeb really wasn't a hit. Maybe depth-wise if Gary Sanchez and Ryan Jeffers are injured, but realistically, losing Ben Rodfeb really doesn't doesn't really have an impact. As for Isaiah Kinnir-Falefa, he really, I mean, he obviously wasn't really with the Twins. He was there with for like a day. And then he got shipped off right away. But he's been great for the Yankees. He's hitting 272. He's got a 0.9 war. He's a great defensive player. He's been hitting above average. That's like above like his what you'd expect him to hit. So seeing him do that, obviously great for him. I don't really have an opinion because he didn't really play for the Twins. Didn't really get really accustomed to him. And as far as Josh Donaldson, we know he's kind of an asshole. And seeing him seeing him out there on the field with the twins and you see when the twins round and they're on third base or Josh Donaldson's on the base you don't really see any twins players interacting with him and maybe that's just Josh Josh Donaldson just being really locked in just being really competitive but usually when you see players on base whether they've played with that certain player they always kind of have conversation it's baseball Players are having conversation. They're hugging. They're they're having fun with each other. Josh Donaldson doesn't do that with any of the Twins players. And as I was sitting by the dugout on Tuesday night, there were some fans that were booing him. And you could see Watkins turn around, and he just nodded his head and was just like, yeah, thank you. And so kind of like going back to when all that stuff with the Chicago White Sox and Tim Anderson was happening and we kind of were getting a little more news about Josh Donaldson as a player. It's not really surprising to hear that many players didn't get along with Josh Donaldson. He's not really a likable guy per se. Um, And obviously we, we heard um, man, I'm like, bl- oh, Liam Hendricks. Sorry. Blanking on the name there for a second. It's late. Liam Hendricks was talking about how there's only, he talked to like four clubhouses in the past about whether or not they like Josh Donaldson and none of them liked him. And we've hear Max Kepler saying that the reason he's made his turnaround is because Josh Donaldson, not because Josh, Donaldson, he just basically said that the vibes are great. Byron Buxton said the same thing. The vibes are great in the beginning of the season. And I think we can kind of almost pinpoint it to Josh Donaldson with him out. That's kind of the, really the big change. It's not Mitch Garver. It wasn't anyone else. Josh Donaldson being out of the clubhouse kind of proves this whole theory of Josh Donaldson almost made the twins worse than he made them great. So having Giro Shella, who's been great offensively and defensively, he has a 0.7 war. He's hitting 274 with five home runs. He's been clutch. He's been great. 
Gary Sanchez has been really good defensively. You know, we've been hearing all this thing about him that he's not a good defensive catcher. He's not a good hitter. And we've seen Gary Sanchez hit for power, come up in big moments, play great defense. So Minnesota's gained two players who are great for the clubhouse, have been awesome defensively and offensively, and they lost a player who kind of brought down the vibes in the clubhouse, who is an asshole, who hits 228, maybe hits for power. But honestly, yeah, in a vacuum, Josh Donaldson's a better player than Girochella, but you're gaining a better, you're gaining a much better clubhouse player. You're gaining a guy who can hit 270, can get on base, can play great defense. It's a win in my book. The, tw- the Twins won this trade, and it's not even close. You can't really even change my mind. Moving on to Tyler Duffy, I have no idea why the hell the Twins have not DFA'd him. I mean, he has, a, what, a 6.55 ERA if I looked it up right now. He has been atrocious. And six earned runs in his last two appearances is absolutely terrible. And I just looked it up. He has a negative 0.7 war. He's 2-3, and and he's an ERA of 6.55. And the Twins brought him in in that situation against the Toronto Blue Jays where it was was an 8-3 game in the bottom of the ninth. And they brought in Tyler Duffy. I was like, whatever, fine. Ninth inning, maybe give him this mindset. Hey, I'm in the ninth inning. Let's finish this thing off. We have a five-run lead. All I have to do is just go out there, throw strikes, get out of the game. And... Gave up a three-run home run, put some guys on base after that. Moran had to come through, finish the game off. Next game, 5-4 game against the Yankees. Two guys on base. Tyler Duffy throws a meatball. Home run, Anthony Rizzo. So, Tyler Duffy is not the same player. His velocity is down. He was He's thrown this season 92 miles per hour, whereas in 2019 it was 94 miles per hour. And if you look at 2020, 2021, it was 93. So his velocity is down. Obviously, maybe two miles per hour tick is not a huge drastic like difference, but it does make a difference if you're a relief pitcher. If you're throwing 92 and your only secondary pitch is a, what is it? I have to look it up. Sorry about that. It doesn't matter. His secondary pitch is it was either a changeup or a curveball. I'm pretty sure it was a curveball, but if you just look at baseball savant, if you look at his percentile rankings, none of it is uh, is none none of it is in a good percentile ranking. The only one is his fastball spin, which is 73 percentile ranking, and his walk percentage, and that's just because he throws strikes. But if you look at everything else. It's the exit velocity is at the very is at one of the lowest expected slugging, expected batting average, expected ERA. Everything is just it's so low that it looks so disgusting to look at. If you looked at it, you would assume that he's not even in the MLB anymore. And I looked at his other pitch is the curveball, which I assumed. And there's just no reason to have a relief pitcher who's throwing 92 and his secondary pitch is an 82 mile per hour curveball. If that's your only two pitches and you have a 6.55 ERA, you have no business being in the bullpen. 
it's tough because I love Tyler Duffy as a player. He's been with the Twins for such a long time that it kind of sucks to say that, hey, this time is over. And I'm sure it's got to be hard for him to kind of come to grips with that idea. But it's just hurting the Twins. And if you keep moving with them forward, they're going to lose many, many more ball games. All right, let's finish things off talking about the NBA draft. We talked about the forward center position last week on the podcast. And this week, I kind of wanted to talk about the small forwards. And Minnesota has a hole, I guess, in that situation, in that specific position. Obviously, power forward is the biggest need. And small forward, maybe not if Minnesota continues to go with Patrick Beverly, D'Angelo Russell, Anthony Edwards, Vanderbilt, Carl Anthony Towns. Obviously, I do not think they're going to roll out the same starting five next season. That would not work. Long term, it would not work. It would be fine for a good chunk of games. I wouldn't say that's what you should roll out and feel the most confident in. And maybe they trade D'Angelo Russell, and then you have Patrick Beverly, Anthony Edwards, Jaden McDaniels at the three. And either Vanderbilt or some sort of power forward, you maybe get in the trade. And then Carl Anthony Towns. And the three and four position are kind of this, who are we throwing in there? Is it Anthony Edwards? Is it Jaden McDaniels? Do you have a, do you find a power forward and then Jaden McDaniels plays the three? Do you draft a three or trade for a three? And Vanderbilt stays at your four there are so many questions and maybe you have an opinion that you think is great and i'd I'd love to hear them all kind of give me a different perspective in each direction kind of idea but in this specific thing we're going to be talking about the small forwards and there are a lot of interesting threes that i talked about last week how i didn't really add any power forwards to the list i was talking about and that's because a lot of the power forwards are kind of that tweener. They're a three, they're a four. If they add muscle, they're a four. If they stay where they're at, they're kind of a three long-term. So maybe these players are someone that could play the four next to Carl Anthony Towns next season. So these three I kind of picked as kind of that idea that they add muscle and play the power forward. Worst case, they play the three, and I don't think that's such a bad thing with the size and the skill set these kind of players have. And the first player I want to talk about is, is Usman Jang. And obviously that's spelled D-I-E-N-G. So kind of bringing a little bit back towards the Gorgie Jang type thing with Minnesota, give them that kind of tie. But Usman Jang is a player, is is simply just a boomer bust. He's a player that you can pick at 19 and you feel really comfortable if he does become a bust. Because at 19, you're not finding maybe that first round talent, this guy who's going to change your franchise or this guy that's going to come in, be a starter and have a really big impact. And for Jang, I think he's going to come in and he's either going to be really good or he's just going to fall out of the league pretty quickly. It's kind of when Toronto drafted Bruno Caboclo, where Maybe they're on this idea that he's going to have that Giannis Antetokounmpo transition where he looks really great, like really raw, really talented, 
develops into this player. And I think that you could say the same thing about Jang here, where he is maybe not going to be, he's only 19 years old and he's six, nine, he's 185 pounds, but he has a seven foot wingspan at 19. He's 185 and six, nine. You think he'd add muscle and more than likely if he, if he comes with, if he develops into this player, he will add muscle. So I don't, I'm not really concerned about the strength part of this, but if he does add it, that's a perfect addition at the power forward position. And I'll kind of talk about this in my pro player comparison to him. But the stats don't really show how good he truly is. He had a much better second half of the season. But overall, he averaged 8.9 points, 3.2 rebounds, 1.1 assists, and 0.6 blocks. He also shot 39.8 from the field, 27.1% from three, and 66.7 from the line. Obviously, this is European stats. So anytime you look at a European player's stats, they're never going to look as good as a collegiate player or a G League player. A lot of these guys that are coming over from Europe are only playing 20-some minutes a game. They're not playing 30. They're not going to be playing NBA minutes. So a lot of this, you could, maybe if you double it, if you if you want to put it in that kind of sense, what if you double it? Then he's Then he's looking at maybe 18 points a game, six rebounds, but... That's just not how it works over in Europe. And so some of my pros is you're going to be drafting a player who has all-star level talent. He's He has the ability to become a two-way potential player with his playmaking ability. And I know he only has 1.1 assists, but if you just watch the tape, if you watch his highlights, he drives to the hoop and he makes really good reads on where to throw next. Maybe he kicks it out to the corner, or maybe he finds a guy driving to the hoop and he gives him a nice, easy layup. The assist numbers don't really show what kind of vision he has on the court. And I think that's kind of almost more exciting because you could be thinking about maybe he's playing a pick and roll with Anthony Edwards and he's driving to the hoop and he finds, or maybe he's just doing a pick and roll with Carl Anthony Towns. He's doing a pick and roll. He dishes to Cat. For three, he gets it. He gets cat down low. Maybe he just drives to the hoop and he finds a cutting Anthony Edwards for an easy dunk. And for a player who's six nine, he has this point forward potential. That's got to be extremely exciting if you're a Minnesota Timberwolves fan. Just having a player who's six nine can dribble the ball, and the excitement of maybe kicking out to even. Imagine him and Jaden McDaniels, 6'9", 185 pounds. You're having two extremely tall but skinny players kind of dominate, dice up the opposing defense. And Jang is also a really good defender. If you watch him, he can stick with his defend. He can stick with uh, with who he's guarding. He blocks a lot of shots with his 6'9 frame. He can get out, steal the ball, get an easy dunk at the rim. If you watch him kind of play, there's a lot of times where he can sniff out the lanes, kind of predict where the ball is going to go next. And you can't really teach that for a guy who's only 19 years old. And that's extremely encouraging moving forward. And specifically, if we're talking about scoring, I think he's good at ISO. He, he looked a lot better in ISO situations in the second half of the season. Obviously, the cons are he's only shot 39.8% 
from the field, 27.1 from three and 66.7% from the line. But as I said before, he looked a lot better in the second half. So maybe in maybe year two or year three in the NBA, maybe he's shooting 43, 44% from the field, maybe shooting 33, 34% from three and shooting 70% from the line, all while giving you great defense, playmaking ability, and that's just extremely valuable for a guy at 6'9", who can play that power forward, small forward position. And overall, of the three guys I'm going to talk about, he might be my least favorite pick just because there is such an unknown with him. But if you want this player at 19 that can maybe transcend your NBA, like obviously Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns are doing that with Minnesota, but maybe you're drafting him and thinking that he can maybe be that third player or be that fourth option next to Jaden McDaniels, D'Angelo Russell. There's a lot of excitement with him. And obviously there's also a lot of question marks. And moving forward, I think his pro comparison is Jaden McDaniels and a poor man's Ben Simmons, just because Ben Simmons is great at what he does defensively. He's a great playmaker, rebounding, not the best scorer, but he is able to use his athleticism to get easy dunks at the rim. Obviously not in the playoffs, but Jang can do the same thing, but he has the ability to shoot from three. So I don't think he's going to be as good as Ben Simmons moving forward, but the idea of him becoming a two-way player with the defensibility, the playmaking, potentially the ability to shoot from three as a small forward is really intriguing. And I think my favorite guy in the draft at this 19 potential area is Nikola Jovic. And yes, it sounds really close to Nikola Jokic, but the only difference is the V in the last name. Nikola Jovic is probably the most Tim Connolly pick you can, you can get. Obviously, he drafted Nikola Jokic, and you kind of see Tim Connolly kind of find these gems. He also finding he's done really good at scouting with the EuroLeague players. And Nikola Jovic would just be another player added to the resume. And how fitting would it be if they drafted Nikola Jovic and he becomes an all-star, maybe even MVP. I don't think MVP, but maybe he becomes an all-star. Maybe he becomes a really good player. Everyone will be talking about this guy found Nikola Jokic and Nikola Jovic. But Nikola Jovic is a guy who's 6'11", 225 pounds. And while he looks like he'd be just a prototypical four because he's got this height maybe he's yeah and he's 225 but if you watch him play and the way he moves and the way he kind of looks he does not look 225 he definitely needs to add more muscle if he wants to become a four and right now i think he's in that three that small forward position maybe plays small ball four but he did average 11.8 points 5.5 rebounds and 1.0 assists he shot really well, actually, 55.2 from the field, 40% from three and 75, excuse me, from the line. And the pros are his size for a guy who's 6'11", can kind of do all this Luka-esque type things. And he's not, I'm not comparing him to Luka Doncic. Luka Doncic is in his own 
category, his own tier. But for a guy that you can draft at 19 to come in, shoot 50-40 and maybe 50-40-90 at some point, that gives you this playmaking ability is we talked about it before with Jang. Nikola Jovic has this ability to become a Boyan Bogdanovich player. And that's my pro comparison for him. I didn't want to say it yet, but he just fits that mold so well as a guy who can maybe be spot up in the corner or you give him the ball and let him go to work and find Anthony Edwards, find Carl Anthony Towns down low, find D'Angelo Russell on the wing. There's just a lot to like about him. And overall, I think he has the highest ceiling of all these players just because he's played professional basketball at such a young age. He's 6'11". He already has the weight almost to him, 225. You like to see him maybe add 10 or 15 more pounds. But he's so close to being already NBA ready and contributing for this Minnesota team. And for Jang, he's not going to be competing. He's not going to be, sorry, he's not going to be helping the Timberwolves out as much as Jovic would. And maybe in years prior, you'd be like, let's go with Jang because we're not going to be competing. Minnesota is competing for a ring. And that sounds really weird to say, but they are not, they're far off, but they're not super far off. If you would say in two to three years that they're potentially going to be fighting for an NBA championship, I wouldn't be surprised because Anthony Edwards at that point might be, 23, 24, and he's transcending into this MVP level player. Carl Anthony Towns is 30 years old and he's kind of found his own and Minnesota's finding that point guard position. And Jovic has that ability to help the Minnesota Timberwolves move forward. The only things that kind of holds him back is his defense and athleticism. And Minnesota's already kind of struggles sometimes defensively, which is why Patrick Beverly was such a big addition to this team both culturally and defensively and Jared Vanderbilt was such an awesome pairing with Carl Anthony Towns but Nikola Jovic at 6'11 225 pounds I do believe that at some point as he matures as he gains experience playing and in the NBA eventually I believe he can become a defensive player and that's why I'm not really worried about him and that's why he is my favorite player at number 19 I think he has the potential to become an all-star as I said before, my pro comparison of him is Boyan Bogdanovich. Last player I want to talk about is Tari Eason. And for him, if you watch his highlights, you would get extremely excited, especially when you see that he averaged 16.9 points, 6.6 rebounds, 1.0 assists, 1.9 steals, and 1.1 blocks. But he only started in four of the 33 games, and that kind of concerns me moving forward. If Minnesota drafts this guy at 19, are we automatically penciling him in to come off the bench? If you're drafting a guy first round in 19, you're maybe kind of hoping that you can find a guy who can start, especially because he is 6'8 and he has a 215-pound frame. But to only start in four games in college, this is, he played two seasons, he transferred. But... Even that first season before he transferred, he did not. He he was coming off the bench in that as well. In his freshman year, he, as I pull it up here quick, freshman year he started 
in eight games and played in 23 total for Cincinnati. Then he transfers to LSU, and as I said, four and 33. He's more than likely going to be a player. Uh, the pro comparison, pro comparison makes a ton of sense when I get to it, but the pros, he's incredible in transition with being 6'8", 215. He's extremely athletic, which allows him to use his speed and athleticism to run to the hoop with ease, get the easy dunk. If you watch a lot of his highlights, more than likely his, his a lot of his buckets are going to be coming in transition, driving to the hoop, dunking in transition. A lot of he actually has a lot of posters, so he's a lot of fun to watch if you just watch his highlights. If it's in a half court setting, he's probably going to do a lot of his damage off cuts and driving to the hoop. He has a jump shot. He I'll talk about that in a second, but more than likely the chunk of his offense is going to be coming just off cuts and just using his athleticism and maybe moving forward. He develops a jump shot. That's super reliable and he can do damage off the wing in the corner, etc. Defensively, you have to be extremely excited about what he could be. He has the ability to become an all defensive player. I believe, you know, he, he combined for three stocks, which is just blocks and steals combined. He can stay with defenders. If he loses them, he can just block them at the rim. And just having 1.9 steals per game, 1.1 blocks, it's just super exciting to maybe see what that might be like coming off the bench or just in a spot start for the Timberwolves moving forward. And scoring-wise, he averaged 17 points per game. He shot 52.1 from the field. 35.9 from three and 80.3 from the line. You have his size of a 7'2 wingspan, 6'8, 215 pounds. But the cons is is what I've been talking about with his jump shot. Sure, he shot 35.9 from three, but it's a little concerning. If you watch his highlights, the shot does not look sound. It doesn't look great. So I believe if he gets drafted, Minnesota's gonna have to do a lot of retooling or kind of just fixing his mechanics on his shot because if you watch it just looks like he pushes it it's not like above his head kind of your prototypical just jump shot squared up it just looks really awkward it's i'm not really too concerned about it because he did shoot 35.9 if it works it works but he just shoots it really low and i kind of have a feeling a lot of these shots are going to get blocked but the other con is he doesn't really pass that much. So maybe that's not great with this team. Minnesota's trying to build this, this team that everyone works together kind of and Tim Connolly, he drafted all these players and built this Denver team and Denver has all this continuity. Yes, but they share the ball. And if you watch every possession, it a lot of the time, every player on the floor touches it. And with Tar Eason, he doesn't really pass that much. He's not going to be looking at others to give them an open shot or let them get going offensively. And maybe Tim Connolly doesn't look for that kind of player moving forward. And that wouldn't surprise me, but you also have to look at his turnover, especially if he doesn't pass. You'd like to see him maybe handle the ball really well. 
and he doesn't really do that. He's really loose with the ball. He averaged 2.2 turnovers per game. But overall, I mean, you're talking about a guy who is who had three stocks. He averaged almost 17 points per game. He shot 52%, 35 from three, 80% from the line. There's a lot to like about him, but he didn't start. And I just don't know if he fits Tim Connolly's what he's trying to build in Minnesota. If you just look at what Denver did and my pro, my pro comparison for him is Marcus Morris. And I think that fits perfectly six, eight player two fifteen, really good athleticism and size can maybe shoot the ball. I mean, Marcus Morris is a better shooter, but you have this player who's going to be maybe and Marcus Morris can come off the bench and play extremely well. And maybe Tar Eason becomes one of the best, six-man players of the year, six-man in the NBA in the history, in the history of the NBA. But at 19, I don't think Minnesota's necessarily looking for a guy who is automatically just penciled in as a bench player. I don't see how he would fit with alongside Ant. So I have some question marks with his fit with Carlton Towns, D'Angelo Russell, Anthony Edwards. And maybe he's great off the bench, but at 19, I don't really think you should be looking for a guy who's specifically going to be just automatically coming off your bench. There's a lot to like about these players, and we'll be talking about the guard position, which I think next to power forward or maybe a backup five is the biggest question mark and biggest area of need that Minnesota needs to address. You have D'Angelo Russell, but that's a huge question mark in the air. So we'll be talking about that next week. I won't be going to the Minnesota Vikings. Just didn't really have enough time. Not really a whole lot going on. You know, I could talk about OTAs, but there are so many other reporters who are doing a really good job covering that. I figured I put more effort into kind of giving you guys some NBA draft knowledge, maybe what's going on with the Twins, etc. But that wraps up our 12th episode. Thank you all for listening. Cheers.